Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Let me begin my comments uh, by saying these things about someone who tees up the topic and I don't think was a believer. Hope I'm wrong. Before I do all of that, would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, uh, Yeshua, I um, thank you so much for this opportunity to be in this very special place with this very special people, a seed of people, I believe, that will grow and enrich this community in years to come. I thank you for what you've done in this synagogue already and for what you will do through its people in the years ahead. I pray you would bless this time and this message, Lord. Let it be yours for us today and us for you in the tomorrows of our lives. And we thank you for that and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So today I want to address a topic that all too often is taken too lightly, in my opinion, by the Church of Jesus Christ, Yeshua. 19th century Scottish historian and essayist, and he was also a philosopher, Thomas Carlyle, said this, quote, the mandate of God to his, quote, creature man is work. Carlyle was unknowingly referring to what theologians call the cultural mandate. Mandate is defined as a command or an edict. And although there is nothing to lead one to believe that Carlyle, in fact, was a man of faith, and I hope that's not the case, he got it. He got it, and you're going to find out, hopefully, in this message what it is that he got. So my title today is God's Mandate for Us. Three points. Every preacher has three points, right? Someday I'm going to do two. Maybe one day I'll do five. That's when they'll leave early, but um, three points. Our purpose, God's gifting, and kingdom impact. Our purpose, God's gifting, and kingdom impact. So, let's move into our purpose. In the 28th verse of the first chapter of Genesis, God states what theologians call the cultural mandate. Listen along. Many of you know this. He says, God, or it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This text, the cultural mandate, depicts creation responsibilities given to man. These are responsibilities that we had from the beginning of time. Increase in number, subdue it, work it, till the garden, Adam, and rule over it. Care for what I have given you to rule over, what I have made. So basically God says to Adam, populate it, 
work it, care for it. He's telling Adam and Eve nothing less than what is in fact his own nature. And we'll get to that in a minute. So I'd like you to listen sort of quickly to three other verses in Genesis. They're all out of the second chapter. Very quickly, this is an enlightening series of text. See if you can count the number of times God talks about work. By the, this is 2, verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it he rested from all his work of creating that he had done. Four, verse four, second half of it, or four, two, chapter two, four, verse four B. When God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. So in quickly looking back, what we see just in these last two verses is that God had not, not yet created vegetation to grow. Why? No one to work it. And God had not yet sent rain on the earth yet. Why? No one to work it. There was no one to work the ground that ultimately would be growing vegetation. What we see here just in the second chapter of the first book of the Bible, first book of the Torah, is this. There is a continued connection between the Creator and, it, and His creation beginning with, beginning with Adam and Eve and that day-to-day, -day, although we were given responsibility to populate the earth, fill it, we were given responsibility to care for what God had created, have dominion over it. The day-to-day -day responsibility that we were given and are given is to work. What I want you to hear at the beginning of our time is that we see here that God is, this God, work is not a curse. It's not a curse for the fall, for sinning. He did not, it is not a punishment. It was always intended because God himself is a worker. Work is not bad. Work is to be for him and therefore good, whatever you do. God is a worker, and our work is to be done in conjunction with his plan for our lives. That is our purpose, day to day, whatever we do. Now let's look at God's gifting in order to do that. So we go back to the Torah. This is in Exodus. It's chapter 31. I should have put this on a slide. I apologize for that. I want you to listen to seven verses. So let me give you just a little bit of background. You know all of this, I am sure. So chapter 31 is followed by many incredible things that God has done. The exodus from Egypt, manna from heaven, Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, just to name a few. 
And now we're looking at the creation of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, the movable meeting place of God. That's the context, chapter 31 of Exodus. So listen along. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge, and all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. Moreover, I've appointed, appointed Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given skill to all the craftsmen to make everything I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony with the atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent. That's a lot of stuff. Several points, I think, that are really interesting here. The first is that notice that God chose Bezalel. It says right in verse 1, God chose Bezalel. He's telling Moses that. Now, many of you have heard of the Septuagint. I'm sure some of you have not. It is the Greek Old Testament. Obviously, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there was a time in history where Greek-speaking people translated the Old Testament so they would read, be able to read. It is an incredible point in my thinking that the word chosen that God uses here for Bezalel is the same word that is used in the New Testament when Paul says of himself in the first chapter of Romans and in the first chapter of Corinthians 1, Paul called to be an apostle. He's introducing himself to his readership, states his name, and then says his call, his function. Same word that is used in Exodus by, by God to Moses about Bezalel. So why is that interesting? I'll get to that in a second. It's also interesting to me that God filled him with the Spirit. Did you hear that when I read it? I think this is the first time in Scripture that that phrase is used. So why is that important? Well, I'm going to share that with you in just a second. It said that God had given him, Bezalel, skill, ability, and knowledge to do what he's asking him to do for the tabernacle. God had prepared him for that. He had made him with the ability to work with his hands. And who was Bezalel? Anybody know? Did you hear in the text? What, what, did, what was his role in life? What? Yes. Good. Here's what he wasn't. He was not a priest. Please hear that. He was not a priest. He was not a rabbi. He wasn't a prophet. Nor was he a minister, if you want to use that word. This guy is a regular guy. He works with his hands. 
And the same words that are used in the New Testament, and the word of the New Testament Greek is kletos, and that occurs 10 times in the New Testament. And the word means called. Only two times in the New Testament, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 1, is it used in the context of a function where Paul says, Paul, referring to himself, called to be an apostle. 80% of the time, the other eight times that word is used, same word translated for Bezalel in Exodus. Every time that, 80% of the time that word is used in the New Testament is referring to called to Yeshua, called to be saints, called to be followers. So what does that mean? That means that every one of us who work and know Christ have a calling and a ministry, and we'll get into that more in a, later, in, in a moment. Bezalel was a regular guy, and that's the point here. God begins one of the most memorable and impacting times in the history of the Israelites. They're getting ready, preparing to go into the promised land. He does so by calling regular, please hear this, regular people to do ordinary, quote, ordinary things for his purposes and glory. Like Bezalel, God made us all in his image. Psalm 139 tells us that God, he formed us in our mother's womb. He knows all of our days. He saw our unformed body. He made us who we are with the gifts and talents that he, he desired for you and for me. Why? Why would he not use us as he used Bezalel for his purposes and glory in this day and age? Why would he not? He would. He would. Why? Because each one of you, you will come to synagogue, what, a couple times a week maybe? Which is important. But you go to work five days a week, seven days a week if you're a stay-at-home mom. 60% of the waking hours that we have in this culture are spent on the job. Four hours a week maybe are spent in church. For the most part, people who need Yeshua are not going to be here. Some will. But every one of them will be at work. I'll get back to that in a moment. I want to now, we, so, so we're talking about God's gifting. If you look at Psalm 139 and you look at the words used in Exodus, and you look at the flow of Genesis, what you see is God's using and talking to regular people for kingdom purposes. Our purpose, God's gifting. They go together to make us who he wants us to be now for the benefit of the kingdom. And whenever the kingdom benefits, the community that it lives in should as well. So, Kingdom impact. Let's talk about that for just a second. I want us to look at a New Testament text. I want us to look at Paul's letter to Titus. How many of you have read Titus in the last week? A couple of people have. That's amazing. I asked someone to read it recently. I wasn't thinking. I called on somebody. They couldn't find it. I'm sure they can't find it. It's like three chapters, right? I should have asked them to find Philemon. That's only one page. But, I mean, you know, how often do you read Titus? No one reads it regularly. It's rich. 
Hear me, please. Background information. It's one of the three pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. What that means is these three, these three, you got it. Hang on just a second. Turn it off for just a second. I want it to come up. There you go. Thank you. Not the whole thing, just the text. So Titus, one of three letters that are written to pastors down through the ages. These three books talk about what it means to be a church leader, an elder, a deacon. How behavioral traits should be a part of this individual's life. What it should look like. What they should look like, etc., etc. So Titus, he's a missionary. He's on Crete. He's one of Paul's mentees. Crete's a hard place. You ever heard the phrase, he's like a Cretan? That's why. That's where it comes from. It even refers to itself that way in the book. It's a hard place. Titus is a missionary there. Uh, people were difficult. They were self-focused. And in the Roman Empire, last part of the background, in the Roman Empire, at any one given time, scholars will tell you that about 50% of the population was in some form of servitude. The reason I tell you that is this. What you're about to hear is not Paul's view on slavery. You want to know that? Read Philemon or 1 Timothy 1 verse 10. So let's look at the text, Titus 2, 9 and 10, if you put that up, please. So this, this is the text. Um, uh, we have another slide in a minute that's going to break it down. But basically it says... Paul is telling Titus to tell the slaves in the church how to work. Because what happens here on Crete, there aren't many churches on Crete. So you've got slaves and slave owners, if you will, workers, business owners, same church. So he says, Titus, Let's get these. Let's let let's get this right. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. Try to please them, not talk back to them, not steal from them, but to show they could be fully trusted, so that in every way they will be. They'll make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So, what he's saying is how you go about work. If you want to know what he said later to the to the first century church through the book of Colossians about masters or slave owners, look at the fourth chapter. He reminds them that they too have a master in heaven and need to work for him as well. So let me take this apart. Next slide, please, for Titus, if you have it. So here's what we see here. What he's telling Titus to talk to the slaves about, to the workers, if you will, is teach slaves workers to be subject to their masters and everything. In other words, be submissive to authority. Try to please them. Do good work. Make good widgets. If you sell insurance, sell it well. Sell it honestly. Not to talk back to them. Be respectful. And not to steal from them. Be honest. And this last piece here, but to show that they can be fully trusted dependable. So, what he's doing here is he is talking to workers, to, to Titus, to talk to workers about how believers in the marketplace should work, what it should look like. So, 
Why do you think that's so? Can I see my next slide, please? Not back one. We're too, ahead, too far ahead there. Can you go back? All right. There, there should be. There should be one that has an additional word on it. Do you have that? No. All right. Stay with. That's okay. Just stay with me for a second. Put the put the regular text back up, if you would, where it's all together. Yeah. So he's telling them to do all of these things. Be honest. Don't steal. Be dependable. Make a good product. Sell it for a right profit, not exorbitant profit. All of that. That's what this text implies. Why? What does he say in this text at the end that says why we do good work? What does it say? It says to make the teaching of God our Savior attractive. Do you see what he's getting to here? Work done well attracts the community that is around us that does not know God. Work done well attracts the lost, those that need him. That's, that's a phenomenal concept for many people, but it is a biblical concept. The word attractive, the Greek word for that is cosmosin. I want to unpack that very quickly with you because I think it has so much substance to it. So Paul tells Titus, care for the workers, tell them how to do good work because God's using that in order to make the gospel in the community of Crete attractive. Well, the word cosmosin, it means several things, but I want to give you an image of what it really, you know, what one of the best analogies I've ever heard. How many of you here are married? Okay, how many guys are married? How many guys went to a jeweler and bought the stone out of setting, just the stone? How many of you did that and then had it seated? No one. That's fine. I didn't either. <laughs> so let me, let me tell you what happens. I've seen this happen before. You go into a jewelry store and you're going to buy a diamond. You give them basically what you're looking for, the size, etc. And they take the stones out of a little silk bag. And they bring out of the tray either a purple or a black cloth. And they put the stones on the cloth. What does that do? Think about it. Just jumps, right? It highlights the beauty of the stone. Now, if they put it on a white background or maybe a yellow background, it wouldn't. It's not, there's not as much distinction. But that's what they do to make the stone attractive. The gospel, Paul says to Titus, is attractive when work is done well. And remember, Exodus tells us that all of us are called, if Bezalel was, we sure are, to be workers for God. Right? So, as believers, our purpose is to love, obey, and follow our Lord. And today, and I've said this before, we spend 60% of our waking hours on the job, whether it's as a business owner, a tech support person, a paralegal, a stay-at-home mom, 
a physician, a receptionist, a construction worker, a volunteer, and the list goes on. God has given us the gifts and abilities we have to be used as believers for him, where he has placed us. And that's a critical concept. So, we've talked about God's purpose for us and, he's, and his gifting of us. Let's talk about kingdom impact. And as we lead into kingdom impact, let me make a comment about what you've just heard. Whatever air ministry, whatever God has made us and gifted us to do, it's for him. It is his work. And therefore, he takes us and uses us in that context for his purposes and glory. Why would he not? So, kingdom impact. What I'm going to take you to now is a text, although you got a quick glimpse of it, you probably would never think of in using and then being used in a context of work or maybe even anything pragmatic in this day and era. But it is. So, Revelation 21 is what we're going to end with and what we're going to go to. And stay with me as you look at that. Let me give you just a little bit of background. So, John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Gospel writer, Apostle John. They have set him off to the side for his faith. There was a choice. We're either going to execute him or put him in uh, solitary confinement for the rest of his life. And it is here on Patmos, which is right off of Turkey, that he writes the revelation. What you are about to see is a godly man straining to describe an indescribable scene he is seeing in a vision. So, John writes, chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. This is an incredible sight. This is where we will spend eternity. The new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. How in the world, how do you write that? I don't know what languages you may speak, but what language has verbiage, eloquent and striking enough to describe that? Well, you just read it. The metaphor that John uses is a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. In the first century, this was an image that was memorable to all and about as beautiful as one could convey in their language. What do you think beautifully dressed translates in the Greek. Next slide, please. Not there? Okay, I'll tell you. Beautifully dressed is cosmosin. Same word. 
It is the same word in the Old Testament that was translated in the Septuagint explaining what the Old Testament said to Greek-speaking people. Bezalel was chosen by God. That was the word call. Here, cosmosin, that call was used in Exodus. Cosmosin was used in Titus, and it was used here to describe work that translates amazingly well to people who don't know God when it's done well. But here, beautifully dressed, cosmosin, remember the diamonds coming off the felt? Work done well, same word, attracts the lost. Here, it's the best thing that John can think of to describe what he's seeing. Titus, in using this word, is using the same word to describe how attractive well-done work is by believers to the community in which they live. So Paul translated Cosmosin winsome and study and stunning. John translated beautifully dressed Cosmosin perhaps is awe-inspiring. What I want you to hear today, kingdom impact. God's purpose for us is to know and understand that he has gifted us to do what we do, and therefore we do it for him, for his glory. That is his purpose, is to do work well, and he has enabled us by the, by the abilities, the traits, the insights, the attributes, the knowledge that he's planted within each of us to do what he's called us to do well. As believers, you are where he wants you to be for him until he moves you somewhere else because you're always working for him. And the kingdom impact is that when we do work well, because he made us to, to work because he is a worker. Work, it shouldn't take us by surprise. When we do it well, as for him, that is what, as much as anything else, and more than most things, attracts the world to begin to see something different in who we are. 60% of our waking hours are spent on the job, whatever it may be. For others, it may be more than that. Why would God not use those hours in a world that is as broken, is as divided, it is, is as contentious with as much vitriol as we see day to day to day, why would he not use that time to seed, to sow seeds of love, peace, joy, care, in the context of working for people that may be your clients, that may be your uh, Colleagues that may be your bosses, that may be your subordinates, whatever you want to say. Why would he not use that? I will say this. We're out 20, 20 centuries or so. The Great Commission has not yet been fulfilled, right? And I think part of it is because we have allowed people like myself and David and others to do it all.
We haven't had the, we haven't had the understanding that those 12 disciples were just as called, obviously, as David and Buddy are, more so. Not a one of them went to seminary. Not a one of them had, a, not a one of them had an REV or a rabbi before their name. And they turned the world upside down. I want to encourage you to think about the fact that God has prepared you to be a part of turning the world upside down through your work. Not just your work, but certainly through your work. Because God is a worker. We work. We're his. Therefore, what we do reflects him. Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, I, uh, I thank you for, these t for this time to be with these dear people. And for their heart for you. It's exciting, Lord, to see what you're doing within the Jewish community. I love that. It's exciting to see that this is a blended community and that's winsome as well. I pray, I pray for Tikvot that you, Yeshua, would continue to develop your people and the roles you've given every one of them in their lives that are a part of this community to be salt and light in a world that is quite dark and for you to get all the praise and the glory. And we thank you. Amen.